Inside Podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and in this episode, we'll discuss the concept of chivalry during the medieval period and some of the ways that it influenced behaviors in medieval Europe. But first, a story. Once upon a time, there was a man by the name of Bagdemagus, who was the king of the land of Gore an otherworldly, strange land filled with all sorts of weirdness and danger. Well, Baddemagus had a son and named him Malagant, and he wasn't the best guy around. He was kind of a jerk, which I guess you have to be if you live in the dangerous place called Gore. Anyway, in the course of the story, Malagant shows up uninvited to a banquet hosted by none other, other than King Arthur. Armed with the teeth, Malagant swaggers in and informs King Arthur that he has taken many of Arthur's people captive, and there's nothing the king can do about it. Malagant then offers a trade of sorts. If Arthur will send one of his knights alone into the forest with Queen Guinevere, then he and the chosen knight will fight. If Arthur's knight wins, then the captives and Guinevere will be released. But if Malagant wins, then Arthur's people will remain captives and Guinevere will have to go with Malagant. Sir Kay, one of Arthur's knights, essentially throws a temper tantrum and threatens to leave King Arthur's court unless the king will give him whatever he wants. Since the idea of losing a knight like Kay would have been embarrassing to Arthur, the king reluctantly agrees. To no one except Arthur's surprise, Big Baby Kay demands that Arthur allow him to take Guinevere into the woods to fight this roguish ruffian. Bound by his honor, Arthur tells Kay to go ahead. Sir Gawain follows after Kay and Guinevere. He realizes that Sir Kay has been defeated and that the queen has been captured. Setting off in pursuit, Gawain comes across Sir Lancelot, who is tired, dirty, and on foot for some reason. Gawain fills Lancelot in on the sitch, and Lancelot begs Gawain for a horse. Lancelot jumps on the closest horse and rides off like an absolute madman in pursuit of Malagant and Guinevere. Lancelot rides hard and ends up riding his poor horse to death. After this, Lancelot grabs two empty halves of a coconut and starts banging them together as he runs along before he comes across a dwarf driving a pillory cart, essentially a cart that was normally reserved for transporting criminals. The dwarf claims to have information on the whereabouts of Guinevere, and he'll tell Lancelot all about it, if Lancelot will take a ride in the cart. Lancelot hesitates. Zooming into his mind, we can imagine what he's thinking. This is embarrassing. He is a knight of the court of King Arthur. People know him. He has many leather-bound books and his armor smells of rich mahogany. He's kind of a big deal. Riding in the criminal cart would make him seem like an equal or even below the common rabble. Being carried in a cart like this would bring great amounts of personal shame to Lancelot. This will cost him. But it's Guinevere, his forbidden love. But his desire to save his queen quickly overcomes all of these issues, and Lancelot quickly jumps in and goes for a ride with the dwarf. Maybe two seconds have passed in real time. At the end of the cart ride, the dwarf sets him on his way. By this point, Gawain is caught up with Lancelot, but he refused a cart ride. The two knights continue on to the entrance of the, to the land of Gore, a land from which no one can return once they enter. At the entrance to the land of Gore, the two knights discover that there are only two ways in, the sunken bridge and the sword bridge. The sunken bridge is naturally a bridge that lies under the water, and naturally, the sword bridge is a giant razor-sharp sword because why not? Which, side note, this raises a lot of questions. How did Malagant get out to go mess with Arthur? How do the horses get in and out? 
Who thought a giant razor-sharp sword and a useless bridge would be the best pass in and out? Who made the giant sword? <sighs> Legends are weird. After lots of various adventures and hijinks, Lancelot and his friends find themselves standing at the sword bridge, for which those who don't remember is described as a single gleaming blade over ice-cold water. Naturally, at the far end of the bridge, two lions await to attack anyone foolish enough to try and cross the bridge. Lancelot's companions urge him to reconsider this quest, saying such crazy things like, The wind is treacherous. There are lions at the other side ready to eat your face. And oh yeah, this bridge is a freaking razor-sharp sword. This time, Les Lancelot doesn't even hesitate. This is a heroic endeavor after all. God will protect him, and besides, Guinevere is waiting. Naturally, the only way across is for Lancelot to go barefoot on his hands and knees. Hands and feet bloody and sliced, he slowly makes his way across the bridge. The lions turn out to be fakes, and Lancelot ends up fighting against Malagant, only winning when he is informed that Guinevere is watching. Lancelot and Guinevere are reunited, only for Guinevere to give Lancelot the cold shoulder, not even looking at the man who had gone through so much to save her. In time, it is revealed that Guinevere has heard about that little incident with the cart. She says, Didn't the cart shame you a little bit? You must have hesitated, for you lingered a good two steps. And that was my sole reason for ignoring your presence. Basically, the queen was upset that Lancelot hesitated for a split second before jumping into the cart, even though she knew that for Lancelot to do something like that would cost him socially. I didn't talk about everything that goes into this crazy story, but Lancelot rode a horse to death, shamed himself by riding in a cart, fought numerous foes on his way to Guinevere, sliced his hands and feet open on a giant sword bridge, and almost killed himself after hearing a false rumor that Guinevere was dead. He did all of this, and she gets angry with him because he did not socially shame himself faster? And through all this, he is still devoting himself to her. What? What is going on here? In a word, chivalry. In two words, courtly love. And medieval literature is filled with it. We've all seen or heard about it, even if it was in a parody. But what are these things? Well, to put it simply, chivalry was a code of conduct that the knights and nobles in the courts of medieval Europe sought to follow. The story we just heard comes from Chrétien de Troyes' story, Lancelot, the Knight of the Cart, a 12th century poem written, written in Old French. Since there was no set standard of rules or anything that was written down, the notions about what was chivalrous changed from time to time and region to region. Most of the time, for aspiring knights, book like Chrétien de Troyes' story were the only way to know what was deemed to be chivalrous behavior. In her book, Strong of Body, Brave and Noble, historian Constance Bouchard argues that the idea of courteous and polite soldiers came from the old Roman Stoic virtues combined with Christian morality. So there's a blend here, and with it an inherent contradiction. The idea of the courteous soldier, one who is expected to kill mercilessly for the sake of lord and land, but is expected to also be polite and gentle and honorable, even in the midst of battle, as we will see. Barbarian ferocity on one hand, with Christian gentleness on the other. Hulk on the battlefield, with kitten on the shield. Come and see the violence inherent in the system. It was hard being a knight. Bouchard states that knights usually found themselves stuck in this difficult position, where they wanted to be seen as strong, brave warriors, but also to be seen as paragons of knightly dignity. They wanted to win battles fairly and with honor, even if it cost them greatly, as again we will see. Which brings us to the idea of courtly love. 
This again is not something that was, has a nice and easy definition. Instead, the idea of courtly love is just that, an idea. Most of the time it shows up in the writings from the time period and is incredibly idealized. You get stories like Lancelot and Guinevere or Tristan and Isolde, wherein the knight is sacrificing everything he is and everything he has for the favor of his lady. Whether the w lady was married or not doesn't seem to matter. Anyone who knows the story of King Arthur and his knights knows that Queen Guinevere is Arthur's wife, not Lancelot's. Yet the story of Lancelot and Guinevere is one of the central themes in the Arthurian legend. And here is another contradiction. The ideals of courtly love dictated that the knight should do whatever his lady demanded of him. He was to follow and pursue her in everything that he did without hesitation. Even that description sounds like a description of a marital relationship. But chivalry demanded that the knight remain faithful and loyal to his lord and refrain from any kind of illicit affair with a married woman, which didn't always happen. It's kind of circular. You can see this tradition played out even in the modern retellings of Arthur and his knights. One of my favorite examples of this type of chivalry is also one of the most silly. I'm talking, of course, about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. If you haven't seen this movie, do yourself a favor, pause the podcast, and go watch it. I'll wait. Yep, I know, right? Hilarious. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, and it pokes fun at some of the tropes that we see in medieval literature. Take, for example, the scene of Lancelot storming Swamp Castle. In this hilarious scene, John Cleese plays Lancelot, who receives a message on an arrow shot from Swamp Castle. Lancelot believes that the message is from a lady in the castle who is being forced to marry against her will, and will he please, 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 please come to the rescue. At last, a call, a cry of despair. His fighting music blaring in the background, Lancelot hurries off, storming the castle and slaughtering everyone in order to reach the highest tower to come to the lady's rescue. He bursts into the room, kneels, and states, O oh, fair one, behold, I am your humble servant, Lan Sir Lancelot. Lancelot receives the message, charges headlong into an unknown enemy castle, and wrecks havoc, all for the sake of a lady who is in distress. He is seen as brave but dangerous, and his personal prowess and connections with Camelot, it's only a model, almost make it okay with all of that chaos that was unleashed on the innocent wedding party. Lancelot is expected to be noble, and therefore he is expected to be brave, and that bravery makes him noble. When his fighting music hits, he is expected to be a fierce fighter, bravely slaying his foes in his own particular dramatic idiom, but also to be a perfect gentleman when his fighting music ends. It's a humorous mockery of the type of dedication and ferocity that we frequently read about in the Arthurian legends. So what did this look like in real life? As I mentioned earlier, there was no set written standards or a ye old book of chivalry floating around, at least not until much later, like 19th century later. Like we said earlier, most of the ideas that are associated with chivalry in the chivalric code were found in the literature of the time. Stories like Lancelot and the Cart and other Arthurian legends were the best way to find out what the new trends were in the chivalric circles. But problems arise when you consider that what may have been chivalrous for one person may not have been chivalrous for a second person. What if the first person lived in a city that had an abundance of books that he could study to know what to do? What if the second person couldn't read and could only imitate what he saw? Imitation or not, chivalry and its ideals sometimes compelled knights to do cr some crazy things. Take the story of William Marshall, the first Earl of Pembroke, for example. 
William Marshall was a man who came from virtually nothing and was able to rise to the very tip-top of English society. Following his own particular personal chivalric code, Marshall was able to serve as a member of the courts of five different English kings. In his book, The Greatest Knight, Arthur Thomas Asbridge notes that Marshall's adherence to his own particular brand of chivalry helped to shape the foundations of the English governmental system. Early in his career, Marshall was knighted and entered into the service of a patron who lived nearby. But even though Marshall was a formidable opponent on the battlefield, he was not very good at capturing other prestigious knights. Now in those days, capturing a prestigious enemy was one way that knights could earn money since the more prestigious a knight, the more their captors would, could demand for a ransom. Marshall apparently wasn't very good at the whole capturing thing, but was a fierce opponent nevertheless. Eventually, Marshall found himself in the service of King Henry II, the father of Richard I, the Lionheart. Richard became angry with his father Henry's refusal to grant him any territory, and the two soon found themselves in open warfare. Thomas Asbridge tells us that Richard the Lionheart defeated his father's forces at a place called Le Mans. Henry fled the city with Richard hot on his heels. William Marshall, riding with Henry, realized that they were being pursued and turned his horse around in order to buy Henry some time. Charging back, Marshall found himself racing headlong towards Richard the Lionheart, Henry's son and the heir to the English throne. Marshall recognized the king's son as the distance closed between the two. We are told that Marshall was in full heavy armor with his lance couched in his arm, while Richard was barely armed and armored at all. Realizing who he was facing, Asbridge states that Marshall lowered his lance enough to hit and kill Richard's horse, but to ultimately spare his life. Asbridge states that Marshall had an instinctive desire not to kill an unarmed and unarmored opponent, which is what saved Richard I's life that day. The idea that killing an opponent in this state was a dishonorable action is a clear representation of how much of Marshall's conduct adhered to the principles of his own personal form of chivalry. By dropping his lance, Marshall gave up the opportunity to end the destructive conflict and bring order to the continent. But he didn't. Why? As we said, Richard was essentially unarmed and unarmored. William Marshall was not. Therefore, Marshall would have been seen as having an unfair advantage in the encounter. It would not have been a fair fight if Marshall had run Richard through. Second, Marshall would have killed the son of his liege lord, Henry II. That would bring even more dishonor and shame on Marshall, even more than killing an unarmed opponent. So instead, William Marshall chose to spare the rebel son's life and keep his honor and chivalric dignity intact. Asbridge notes that Marshall quickly learned how to navigate the turbulent times in which he lived, in part because he was a skilled warrior, but also due to his right conduct and behavior, even though it cost him some measure of personal gain or glory. Now eventually, William Marshall would become a trusted advisor to five English kings, including his former enemy, Richard I, the Lionheart, as well as John Lackland of Robin Hood fame. Now, if William Marshall symbolizes the best and most ideal form of chivalrous knight, then what about those that lean more toward the villainous side of things? William Cafaro, author of the book John Hawkwood, an English mercenary in 14th century Italy, gives us one example. As the title says, John Hawkwood was an English mercenary, or sellsword, who was particularly successful on the battlefield. He commanded a sort of melting pot of an army of professional soldiers, which meant that he had to have a firm hand in matters of military discipline. We are told of a particularly terrible moment 
where Hawkward encountered some of his men who were arguing over who would have the chance to rape a young nun that they had with them. Hawkward walked up and fatally stabbed the young nun instead. On the surface, this is a horrible act. Yet Cafaro tells us that Hawkwood was actually commended by his contemporaries for killing the nun because it prevented disharmony among his troops and it allowed the young nun to maintain her holy vow with God. As crazy as it seems, keep in mind that what was chivalrous for one man might not be chivalrous for another. As time went on, the concept of chivalry began to be used as a sort of psychological weapon for those in power to attempt to shape society around them. Christopher Tyreman tells us in his book, God's War, A New History of the Crusades, that some iterations of the chivalric code included some form of service to God in order to be considered a good knight. Some, like John Hawkwood, were dubbed as knights, but chose to ignore the religious part of their calling. Others dove headlong into service to the church, hoping for the glory and renown that would come from defending church values and defeating church enemies. Papal declarations that absolved men from their sins was, of course, an added bonus. During the time of the Crusades, the church and papal states used concepts of chivalry as a reason to fight for the church against the Saracens occupying the Holy Land and Jerusalem. Even other Christians, who found themselves outside of the church's accepted ideologies, such as the Cathars, were crusaded against for their heretical ideas. Chivalry in the medieval sense was closely associated with the concepts of knighthood and has been described as, a, as giving a certain culture to the nobility and the upper class, which makes sense given its close ties to knighthood, like we said. Being a knight was also incredibly expensive. First, there was the horse and the time and energy it took to raise and train it to be a war horse, capable of carrying you and all of that armor. Second, that armor and the weapons were expensive. Third, you had to put in the time and the training to learn how to use all of those expensive weapons and how to move in the armor. For most people, it simply became easier and cheaper to become a professional soldier with a crossbow. In time, those two concepts of knighthood and the nobility began to fall out of fashion for a number of reasons. First, the military effectiveness of the knight in shining armor on horseback began to diminish thanks to improving military te technology and training. Over time, it simply became easier to kill armored knights than it had been before. The standard set of plate armor that you probably think of when you think of a knight is great for protecting against sword slashes and most attempts at blunt force trauma. Knights in plate armor were essentially walking or riding tanks on the battlefield, able to absorb or deflect massive amounts of damage, but with disadvantage on their stealth rolls. But the weakness of plate armor is that it doesn't do too well against puncturing weapons such as pole arms or heavy crossbow bolts. As advances were made to those kinds of weapons, the desire to be a knight dwindled. In a sense, the improvements to the crossbow proved to be the death of traditional medieval chivalry. Finally, the concept of the nobility and all of its rules and regulations began to be challenged and questioned. Why go through all the trouble to capture someone and ransom them when you could get a steady paycheck as a professional soldier? Now, so far, we have focused on the concepts of chivalry at mostly the individual level. What about for the upper classes? Think back to the story that we heard at the beginning of this episode. Malagant makes his cocky demands of King Arthur, and it seems that Arthur must do something about the capture of his people, even if it means putting his wife in danger. Here we see one of the first expectations that kings and rulers had to follow. They had to take care of their people, no matter the cost. 
While he's still figuring out what to do, Sir Kay stands and threatens to leave Arthur's service. This would have been bad for Arthur on two counts. First, Kay leaving would mean that Arthur had one less proven warrior at hand to fight for the king. Second, for a man of Kay's status to leave would raise questions about the king's ability to govern both his retinue and his land. Arthur couldn't let that happen, so he was in a sense honor-bound to allow Sir Kay to go ahead and answer the challenge. In the real world, we turn back to William Marshall. Marshall, remember, turned his low birth into an advisory role to five English kings. Once at the height of societal positions, Marshall began handing out lands and titles to all the people that supported him. Even when he was not able to be physically present, Marshall made arrangements for others to help him care for his people. As we've seen, the ideas of chivalry were integral to how people in medieval Europe thought and acted. In the end, chivalry was a set of ideals and behaviors that were incredibly difficult to follow, as they were inherently contradictory to the realities of the time and the realities of human nature. It was a set of beliefs that the nobility liked to believe that they could follow, even when they failed miserably. And that'll be it for this episode of the History on the Side podcast. As always, lots of thanks to everyone who's been listening and sharing the podcast with their people. Keep it up. Also, big shout out to my friends Tyler and Kylie. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, you can always get in touch with me by emailing me at historyontheside at gmail.com and through Facebook and Instagram. Just search for History on the Side and enjoy. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.